You know, I was thinking about the song the whole time we're singing the song. I'm thinking, what is it? What is it if someone's sitting there singing, what a beautiful, wonderful, powerful name is the name of Jesus? Maybe some of us would be tempted to say, why is it so beautiful? Why is it so wonderful? Maybe you're watching and you're hearing words sung like this and you're asking that question. And I began to think about the reasons that, that are unending that would tell us why Jesus' name is so beautiful, wonderful, and powerful. How about, how about when he takes someone who's blind and he miraculously heals their eyes and he does so in an environment when all the people who had influence were looking at him with disgust and hate and were trying to do everything they could to, to cancel him or to put him out and he continues to reach down to the weak and the poor and help them even though it would mean people conspiring against his death. In the temple on the Sabbath, people looking at him trying to see what Jesus would do on the ta- Sabbath with someone with a withered hand and he pulls him close and he looks around at the hearts of all the people who should show this man compassion and he restores this man's hands back to perfect health what did it do it only led for them to hate him even more how about a jesus who's who's taking his disciples out to sea and he allows a great storm to arise and he sleeps in the stern of the ship and as the storm storm is brewing he's asleep and he wakes up and he speaks to the storm and causes it to go completely calm that's a powerful powerful name what about a Jesus when a man who's there to arrest him in the middle of the night, one of his disciples cuts the ear off a soldier there to take Jesus captive and Jesus stops his very excited disciple and he picks the ear back up and puts it back on the soldier and willingly goes, stands before the people whom he made, the people who will one day answer to him, the people who will bow their knees to him. He willingly puts himself under their judgment and allows them to mock him, spit on him, punch him, rip the hair from his face, put a crown of thorns on his head and ultimately go to the cross and die willingly. And from the cross, from the cross, look down at those who are gambling over his clothes and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm telling you, this is why his name is wonderful and powerful and awesome and why we'll sing of it for all of eternity. I just hope you know that now. You know it now. And I hope you see and you know the beauty and the wonderful and the powerful nature of Jesus. He's beyond anything we could imagine. And so because of him, as we're going to see today, because of him, the, tour has been, the, the, the veil has been torn in two and we can come boldly to God and approach him in a way that all of our ancestors could not before he died and rose. So let's go boldly to the throne of God without fear of rejection and look at our father and ask him for help right now. Let's pray. Father, you have given your son the preeminence over everything. That by him and for him and through him everything was made. And without him nothing was made. And through him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. He is our leader He is our great high priest. He is the one we look to. And I pray that you'd turn our eyes and our hearts to him and you'd be pleased by the worship of your son. Father, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds now to see the hope that you've given us, to have the faith in that hope, to know that it began immediately when we were losing everything. And Father, the hope we have now continues. And we can look to our future and know that you are doing something wonderful. And for your people, there is nothing but a reason to rejoice that remains for us, regardless of the circumstances going on around us. We pray all of this in the wonderful, powerful, awesome name of Jesus. 
Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone. Glad you guys are here. If you're watching, I'm glad you're here. I hope your hearts are encouraged. I sense a heaviness in the room. You know, sometimes we have those weeks, you know, where it's like this collective energy of like just tired. That's how I feel today standing up. Maybe I'm just feeling that and I'm projecting that on you, but maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of life. Life, I'm really feeling life, the reality of life, either through hardship and through pain, through sickness, through work, through things not going the way I need it to go, through having to keep up with things that I really don't want to have to keep up, through dealing with what's going on with my kids or maybe what's going on at school with friends and stuff around, just exhaustion of life. Are you there? Maybe some of us, maybe all of us there. Hey, well, we're in this together. And when we open up this, we see words of life that'll help us along the way. And that's what I hope we see today. Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, and we're gonna be talking about unbelievable hope. Actually, if you see on the screen... It's unbelievable hope in the midst of losing paradise. Unbelievable hope in the midst of losing paradise. Let me give you a recap. Maybe you're wanting to know, okay, you're you're here for the first time. You're trying to figure out why and where are we going? We're in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are the first created beings and they're losing Eden because they have disobeyed and chosen to go their own way rather than God's way. And they've ate of the fruit and God has pronounced these curses, right? And we've looked at these necessary consequences that have come along from the curse that God is placing. Pain and misery that's been introduced into life. But when we look at scripture with the right eyes and we look and we really see the character of God of what he's doing, we see everything that he is doing is purposeful. Everything is a design to turn our hearts back to him. But in this particular passage at the end of chapter three, what we see happening is Adam and Eve actually losing paradise, being separated from God. And if we just read it, we might, we might be prone to read those passages and come away focused on the unbelievable despair of the situation, putting ourselves in that situation of, of literally seeing a beautiful Eden in paradise just fade away as we're cast into seemingly arid desert to work the ground and to eke our way of life waiting for the moment for us to die. I mean, it's depressing. It's disparaging. It's something that would create despondency and just a, a, a great self-deprecation, I would imagine, if we put ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes. But what I want us to see today is the unbelievable hope that is actually screaming forth from this passage in the character and the nature of God to love his people and his creation with a love that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine. Genesis chapter three, I want you to read it with me. Not out loud, but read it along with me, starting in verse 20. So we've just had the consequences. We've had the curse come. We've had Adam and Eve told the pain that will come into life. And then he says this in verse 20. He says this. He says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, The Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree 
of life. Uh, Jasper, how in the world are you bringing hope out of this passage? You know, we watch enough movies and we know when something's good and when something's bad and you have no pain, no suffering, you have Eden, you have everything's easy and great and there's no sin and there's no death and things are great and you're having God cast his first creations out of that and separate them from himself. How in the world is this a hopeful thing? Well, we saw in the consequences there was hope in that too. God was doing something purposeful. And, and when we read this passage, what I'm wanting us to, to see here today is it's not something that just happened thousands of years ago. I want us to see the nature and the character of God, of how, how immediately at the beginning of time when things go awry and things seem lost, immediately God starts to solve the problem. You know what? We could say, we could say today, maybe, is there unbelievable hope? In the midst of a pandemic? Is there unbelievable hope in the midst of things changing? Is there unbelievable hope in the midst of losing a loved one? Is there unbelievable hope in the midst of life not going the way we want it to, experiencing just the pain and the misery from the curse altogether? So you're going to try to tell me that there was hope then and now there's hope now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's look at it. Here's the first thing I want us to see in this passage, verse 20. I want us to see the unbelievable hope that comes from God's promise through the woman. Look what he says here in verse 20. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve. This isn't just random detail and fact that God's inspiring to put in scripture. All of this is part of the grand story that God is telling. The man called his wife's name Eve. Why would he call her that name about life? Because she was the mother of all living. Stop, let's think about this. In the garden, you have man who's made from the dirt of the ground, the dust of the ground. And his name, Adam, reflects that because it sounds like the word dirt or earth, Adama. And so his name is Adam. And then you have woman brought from the side of man. And he looks at the woman. He says, this is very good. Flesh to my flesh. She comes from the man. Her life sustaining uh, efforts or her, her life sustenance actually comes from the man in her creation. And he looks at her and he's like, she's like man, but she's not quite man. I therefore am going to call her woman. The word woman is sounds like the word man. But then after all of this, and specifically after God says to the serpent and Adam is hearing God speak to the serpent earlier. And he says, Through the woman, I'm going to bring enmity between you two and through her offspring and through your offspring. And then God makes this promise. Through the woman is going to come this seed. You'll crush his heel, but he will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So what are we, what are we, what are we seeing here? We're seeing one of the first responses of Adam is an act of faith. An act of faith in that he believed out of everything that could be happening, he's immediately in his dire, despairing, discouraging, despondent, possibly self-deprecating situation. Instead of focusing on all the bad that's happening, he makes this response of hope through faith in what God had just promised on their behalf. That through the seed of the woman would come a savior would come this snake crusher, would come this hope, would come something that would do away with this enemy once and for all. And so do we see, we see Adam already showing us the hope in losing paradise through the promise of the woman. And so now Adam gives his wife 
gives the woman a name that would show now his dependency of life on her. Now, woman got herself from man and her life sustenance came from man. Now the man is reliant on the woman, expecting through her an offspring that would come, that would bring life. And so childbirth being something that's so paramount and so important through scripture. You see the theme of childbirth. You see the theme of the woman constantly giving birth and you see the genealogies through scripture that sometimes you're like, this is so boring. What do I got to read through all these? This begot, 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 begot. Well, you think this, if the hope for mankind relies on the bloodline of the woman and the seed of the woman to, to trace its way to this one important man who would be born sometime later in the future that would bring an utter destructive blow to this enemy that's trying to destroy us, then it's very important to keep track of the genealogies and those who are born. And you see this constant theme of scripture of the people being born and why it's so important that this person God accepted. And this person's of the line of Cain and the evil line, the line that reflects the serpent's family, the serpent's children. And then you see God's children coming through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of this, this constantly building ladder of the seed of the woman, of children being born. And what do you see as the serpent also knows throughout history that a snake crusher is coming? He knows, he's heard the promise yet he thinks he can overthrow God, yet he's going to do everything in his can to try to, power to try to stop it. What does he try to do throughout all of history? Always you see the woman being attacked and you see children being born or either the destruction of children being born all the way from Egypt where the firstborn were being killed and Moses comes forth as one of God's chosen. Yep, he wasn't able to stop the bloodline there. You see it constantly through, we're going to see uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to see in the next couple chapters, Cain killing his brother Abel and a bad bloodline started there. You see constantly the enemy coming in and trying to distort the bloodline and the seed of the woman. Even come to the New Testament, what is Herod doing? The same evil, grueling tactics that is like this great barrage of evil and hatred breath coming from the mouth of the dragon to try to stop the birth of this possible snake crusher. And so he gets wind of the Messiah being born. And what happens? Through the efforts of Herod, he tries to kill all of the, all of the, the young males in the land in a massacre of children. God has created life. He's created women. He's created the womb. And God used the womb as the source of a promise, the source of a savior that would come. And childbirth is so important. Now here's what we know today. We know that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and that blow to Satan's head has been delivered. And we now know that we're simply waiting, simply waiting for the guaranteed return of Jesus to come back and do away with the enemy once and for all, do away with death do away with so much of the things that we're dealing with now. Do away with the curse. But there is time that we're waiting. And you know what the scripture tells us? The scripture tells us that Satan knows that his time is short now. And because of that, he's breathing out hatred, anger against the people of God. And so you're going to see, you're going to see in this world, this clamorous effort of the enemy to use the tactics he's used all alone to try to bring death and misery to the world and destroy God's people always after us, always breathing threats against the people of God. What do we see today? 
We still see today massacre of children from the womb being, being killed in abortion. We're seeing the tactics of the enemy at work full play constantly, all the time, because he hates you and me, and he hates life, and he hates the woman, and he hates the womb, and he hates life being brought into this world. I imagine it's a constant reminder of the life that was brought in through a baby named Jesus that he was unable to stop. And even when given over to the hands of Satan, Satan brought him to the cross thinking he was going to kill him once and for all. But the death of Jesus on the cross was the blow that would ironically come and destroy the Satan. What a beautiful, beautiful story. And all of this is traced back to Genesis 3 when Adam's looking at his wife and he's thinking about the promise of God that the snake crusher would come. And he says, I'm going to name her Eve because my hope is going to come through her. And this beautiful, oh, what a beautiful name it is. So beautiful. Hope coming from the promise of God through the woman. Now, scripture says this about faith. Anytime you see someone talk about hope, you should think about faith because faith is the confidence, as Hebrew tells us, the confidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. So you have hope established, but you have faith in that hope Biblical hope is this, not wishful, because we, we use the word hope in a wishful thinking, like I hope it doesn't snow today. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of what's going to come, it's just not here yet. And so in the garden, you see faith being expressed through Adam as the confidence in the thing that he's hoping for, that he knows is going to come, and it's only going to come through the woman through the seed of the woman, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. And you see faith coming from Adam. You know what I believe? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm dipping into a little bit of just my own, my own uh, interpretation here or belief. So this is just me speaking. I believe Adam and Eve were like total believers. I believe at the moment they get to see exactly, exactly what it means to follow the serpent and exactly what it means to follow God. They get to see the the death and the misery that came from the serpent and they get to see the work of God on their behalf. And I, I, I believe they were one of the biggest evangelists after this. They immediately expressing faith and the only thing they could put their hope in and that's the promises of God. Faith and the hope of God through the woman. I want to show you something that will look like this. I believe God will send a savior. I believe it. Adam's expressing that. Yeah, they're losing paradise. Yeah, but I believe Adam is showing hope. God's going to send a savior. The snake crusher's coming. That tells me that God does care about me. He's going to do something on our behalf. Unbelievable hope. Unbelievable hope. What's the next thing we see? We see hope from God's gracious covering of Adam and Eve. Look what happens next. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, let's pause for a second. We're, gonna, we're stopping right there, but I want to get your mind probably where the original author's mind, uh, original reader's mind would have been when Genesis was written. Imagine you are an Israelite and you're in the wilderness, more than likely when Genesis was written, more than likely by Moses. You're in the wilderness and the book of Genesis is written, and you're reading about your origins. And when you're in the wilderness of God, you're in this, this time of, of not having paradise. The promised land is ahead of you, and you're not there yet, right? So you're stuck in this place of not having a promised land. You're in the wilderness. Sounds great. No, it's not. It wasn't fun at all. 
But, but also during this time, God has brought, he's starting to bring his law and he's brought this thing called the tabernacle. And the people are starting to, to understand and they're starting to look at this thing that God had commanded them to build, this thing called the tabernacle. And the, the tabernacle was this, 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 this tent that had these outer courts and it had these different levels of degrees of places you could enter that only the priest could go to or you could go into. And there was all this ceremonial ritual to become clean. And all of this represented getting closer to God. And what it took ceremonially and symbolically, what it took for in order for us to get close to the presence of God. And the closer you got to God, the more in danger you were of dying. And so they're looking at this tabernacle that God's making, and they're probably having question marks about it. But you know, when you, when you go into the tabernacle, you know what you would see in the inner uh, sanctuary of the tabernacle? You would see all this imagery of the garden, animals and plants. The inner sanctuary would have represented the Garden of Eden. You would have seen the holy of holies where God was that no one could go into. What does that represent? That's telling. That's a, that's a constant reminder that you cannot come into the presence of God. But it's also a reminder if they would have been reading Genesis chapter 3 and they're reading Eden, they're picturing the tabernacle this whole time. Like, oh, Genesis sounds like this tabernacle that God's built. These people were cast out of the presence of God and they lost paradise and Eden. And now we're in the wilderness now and God's given us this constant symbolic reminder of what we lost and the sinful condition that's separating us from God. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to this verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, as you're reading this verse, you're hearing about them losing paradise. You're in the wilderness. You already know what it means to have to have skins from animal and garments that were necessary and sacrificing and killing animals on your own behalf to, 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 to see that your sins are covered. And so immediately you're going to see in the beginning with the first parents as an Israelite, wow, the goodness of God to make provision for your sins. What do we see here? God, didn't they already clothe themselves? Didn't Adam and Eve already make clothes? What, what, what happened? They, they sinned, they felt guilt and shame. They knew that they were naked and so they ran. It said they, they sewed together fig leaves and they made their own clothes. Why wasn't that good enough? Why couldn't they just stay in the clothes that they made? All of this is part of the story that God's trying to tell every single one of us. The the efforts of our own hands is not enough to cover our sins. The efforts of our own hands and what we want to do and think we can do on our own is not enough to deal with sin or our shame or our guilt. And what do we do? We try to do it all the time because we don't want to come to the light. We don't want to come to God. We don't want to put it in his hands. We don't want to confess. We don't want to let that be seen either by him or anyone. And so we try to deal with it all the time. You tell me, how does that work out? It never works. Never helps. But what does it mean when the one who matters comes to you and he covers your shame? Now let's talk about covering for a second. It says here, garments of skin. It doesn't say that he slaughtered or sacrificed an animal, but the implication is that he did. In order to get a garment of skin, an animal had to die. So Adam and Eve were already seeing, already seeing what has to take place already seeing the wrath of God that sin provokes, already seeing what has to be done on their behalf in order to have their sins covered. You want to play around with sin? You want to go your own way and do your own thing? Guess what? Something in your stead has to die. 
Innocent blood has to be shed in order for things to be made right. This is the egregiousness of sin. And they would have seen like, oh no, what are you doing? This beautiful animal, these animals that we've, we've lived in harmony with in the garden. And now this, this thing that I was in charge of protecting is having to die in my place. What do you think is going through Adam and Eve's head in this moment? What are they seeing? Yes, all this, this has to hurt to the 10th degree, but there also has to be hope shining forth as they're seeing God make provision for them. And he kills the animal and he covers them with garments of skin. You see, God's covering in the Old Testament wasn't final though. God's covering was this it was, it was this, this is what needs to happen until the final sacrifice comes. This is what I'm going to do for you so that my wrath will stay here and not be fully realized on you and will cover your sins and stay my hand of wrath as my anger builds every year as the sins of the people are increasing, as more murder and anger and violence and envy and covetousness and sexual immorality abound through my people going their own way, living lives selfishly, doing what they want, when they want, how they want. And my, my wrath is growing as I see them building for themselves wrath upon wrath. So I'm going to institute something for them that will rightfully and justly cover their sins and stay that off and keep that stayed and, 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 keep, and keep that back until I can bring the ultimate sacrifice who won't just cover sins, but eradicate sins. Not just covering, eradicate and remove sins once and for all. The covering did not remove the sin, but it did cover their shame and it, it did what it needed to do for the moment as they waited for God's hand to stay for the savior to come. And you see immediately God doing something to make provision. Hope from God's gracious covering, that is a hopeful thing. And someone who has faith, Adam and Eve, who would have had faith in God, their hope would have been realized and the assurance would have came forth as they said something like this. They would have said, I believe God will provide a sacrifice for my sin. And all the way there back in the beginning, God is setting it up, setting it up. And now you're in the wilderness, says the Israelites, and you're seeing, and now the tabernacle's starting to come alive in your mind as you see what it's supposed to represent. Oh, God has been doing this for us this whole time. What is God doing? He's, he's painting a story, a beautiful picture, is he not? Do you believe God deals with your sin? Do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished and he rose from the dead and his blood was offered to God in the heavenly tabernacle and God accepted it and Hebrew says that he died once for sin. Could you imagine this? Once for sin. Hebrew says that the blood of bulls and goats would never take away sins. It was just, and you had to do that every single year. Every single year is not good enough, but every single year you had to do it just to keep the wrath at bay. Jesus comes along and he dies once and God accepts it. And God says, this is enough to cover all of mankind's sins for all of eternity. And not only to just cover it, to throw it as far as the east is from the west. Brother and sister, when you've fallen into sin for the 10th billionth time and you go to God and you say, God, will you forgive me? I've sinned. You better believe that that hope is now realized. And here we are. We can say that my sins are gone. I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. 
And his blood and his grace is far more powerful than any sin that I may fall into. This is why Jesus came. This is the savior we were waiting for. This is the snake crusher and he has come and here we are. I can trust and put my hope that when I stand before God, yes, though my sins be many and like scarlet, when I stand before God because I put my faith and the hope and the promise of Jesus Christ dying and raising for me, When I stand before him, my sins may be like scarlet, but I will be as white as snow before him. Do not let the enemy bring his useless accusations against you like they actually have power. He's been destroyed and his threats no longer matter. God has been making a way from the beginning and all of this is a vindictive plan to show the enemy and the enemies of God and those who rebel against him that you cannot win against me and you cannot take my people from me. Nothing you do will accomplish your plan, but my plans will always be brought forth, even when I let you do what you want to do. What a beautiful name it is. When God says he saves and forgives, he means it. Hope from what? Here's the third one. Here's what I want us to see. Hope, also, unbelievable hope in the midst of losing paradise. Hope from God's compassionate intervention. God's compassionate intervention. Let's read 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. What do you see happening in verse 22? God is, he's talking to someone. So one of the questions I had is who's he talking to? It's almost like in the beginning when he says, let's make, let us make man in our image. One of the popular interpretations is that he's talking to the Trinity. It's him and the spirit and the son talking. And I think it's probably the most viable uh, option to think who's God's talking to. And he says this, God, he, he looks at the state of Adam and Eve. He sees the condition that they're in. And he says this, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Is knowing good and evil a wrong thing? It's a good question. It's a question I've asked myself. What's wrong here is the way in which they came about knowing good and evil. They sinned in order to be in this condition. Being like God's not necessarily an evil thing, but when you become like God through your own means, through your own control, against the knowledge and the command of God, then it is wrong. So he says they've become like us in knowing good and evil. Now they know what's right and wrong. But life is going to be filled with constant voices that are going to distort what is right and wrong. We're going to know there's a great sense of morality. We experience that today, do we not? Even those who don't acknowledge God are plagued by what's right and wrong and arguing and fighting and clamoring over what is right, what is good, and what is evil. But without God, we will always flip good into evil and evil into good. That's what we do. It's the heart of man. We're always going to do it. He said, behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now he says this, now, now, lest, we don't use that word lest. So let me help you understand what the Bible's saying when it uses the word lest. Now, lest, now, so that. It's, it's intervention. It's, it's, let's do something. Let's, let's, this needs to happen so that this doesn't happen. Think that. Now, lest he reach out his hand. 
or now so that he won't reach out his hand. Now, lest he reach out his hand, which you're going to see that same phrase come in the story of Cain and Abel. When sin is reaching out and desiring, Cain wants to control him. You see reaching out all throughout the scripture as a symbol of man trying to take matters into his own hands. So he says, now, lest Adam try to take control again, like he just did with the knowledge of good and evil tree, now so that he won't do that again, look what it says. And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Wait, 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 God, why would that be bad for Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life? Look, look, here you go, God, again, withholding something good from your people. Here you go. Let them reach their hand out and get the tree of life. Isn't that what they need? Isn't that what they're dying? They need the tree of life. Why don't you let them take of the tree of life? But I want to show you the intervention of God that is filled with compassion, looking down on the sympathy of man's condition and saying, look, they're like us in knowing good and evil, but the way they came about it was through sin. And now sin and death have entered the world. And if they take of the tree of life and eat, they will live forever in the wretched condition that they're in. And I love them too much to let them stay in that condition. Sympathy and the compassion of God, not apathetic, not aloof, not whatever, make your, you made your own bed, lay in it. No, I must intervene. That's what I see happening here. I see one, the, the sympathy and the compassion of God for his people. And then I see him intervening on behalf of his people. So he says, lest they do this so that they will not take and eat of the tree of life and live forever in the condition that they're in, I need to do something. And what does he do? It says here in verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Kind of a, a, a repeating of the consequences that we're giving. They need to go out of the garden and they need to experience the wages of their sin. They need to experience the consequences so they will always remember, like we talked about the last two weeks, so they'll always know that what they want even though they desperately want it and think it will be good for them, will not be good for them, and they need to see that. Work the ground. Experience the pain and the hardship as a result of their choices, not because I'm trying to hurt them, but because I desperately want their eyes of their hearts to be open to how good it is to be with me. I need to push them out. Sin cannot be in my presence, and they must be pushed out. And he uses the word. It gets even stronger in verse 24. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Now let's go back to the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. We're reading this passage. Two things stand out to us. The word east and the word cherubim. Why would the word east be interesting to an Israelite who's reading this, thinking about the temple? Like, wait, the gate of the temple faced east. So if you were going into the temple, where were you going? West, which represented getting closer to God, the presence of God. So when they hear, oh, they're being cast out east from the garden, I'm being separated and leaving and going further away from God. And you see, every time... For the most part, from what I understand in the scripture, you can check me on it, the word east is going to represent this idea of going further and being separated from God, going away from him, being driven out to the east. 
that would have stood out to the people reading this in the wilderness. And the word cherubim, which were these angels that were placed to guard the Garden of Eden, they'd have been like, oh, wait, God placed two cherubim in the center of the tabernacle on top of the Ark of the Covenant as a sign of protection and keeping us away. Wow, God's really trying to help us understand what he's doing with this tabernacle. He's trying to help us understand our condition and who he is and what we've lost and what must take place in order for us to regain it. Man, man, we really messed up. Therefore, the Lord, Lord God sent him out of the garden, out from the east to work the ground and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword. Look at this, this crazy visual that turned every way to guard the tree of life. In other words, no one's getting to the tree on their own. I'm guarding it. I think it's interesting. He said, guard the way. You know what it made me think of? Every single person on the planet is trying to find their way to the tree of life. We're trying to find some means of life and purpose and identity, and we're trying to go our own way. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its, way, its, its end is the way of death. Every single path, take your pick. Doesn't matter which one, doesn't matter how many there are, take your pick. You try to go your own way to try to find meaning and purpose and life and to live. It'll always fall short. Death will still come. There'll be no eternal life. There'll be no purpose. There'll be no reconnection to God because it's your own way. God intervenes when we're going our own way, does he not? He's constantly trying to wake us up, stand in between us and what we want. But then we always conclude, you're trying to keep me from something that I want. You're not being good to me. You're being a bad father. You're not trying to help me and love me. You're keeping me from the things that I feel like I want and what I need. And so we get this conclusion and we think that God's trying to hurt us. Man, he's trying to save us. He loves us so much enough to intervene. We deserve to stay in that wretched condition. We deserve to be cast forever away into hell, separated from God as far as the east is from the west. But no, he shows up and he says, if you let me, I'll cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. Let me. Look what I've done for you. Look at the story I've been painting all of history. Look, look at what I'm doing. Hope in God's compassionate intervention. What happens? Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And then he goes and he dies on the cross. And what happens? What, what happens in the temple? Jesus is in his ministry. He keeps looking at the temple. He keeps doing teachings around the temple and he keeps, he keeps prophesying this temple these, these stones are going to fall. They're going to crumble, right? Because no longer is God going to dwell in this tent. No longer are his people going to be separated from him anymore. And he dies on the cross. He says, it is finished. Great earthquake. And what happens in the temple? The veil is torn in two. The veil that had the cherubim, the pictures of the cherubim on it. You see the symbolism? Tore in two, representing that through Jesus and his work and his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection, 
that the way to God had been restored once and for all. The hope that was expressed here in Genesis chapter three is now realized and it has finally come. And Adam and all of his children and the Israelites who wandered through the wilderness and the people of Joshua who looked to their leader as this great victory leader. And they're like, man, someone's going to come that's going to be like Joshua, but even better. And David shows up and David's like, man, this king, he's awesome, but he's still flawed in a man. There's going to be someone like David that's going to sit on the throne. He's going to be 10 times better than David. It's going to be perfect, but he's coming. He's coming. When is it? When is it? When is it? The Old Testament's written and there's 300 silent years. People wondering, where's God? Where's he at? Where you at, God? Where you at? And then one day, a star appears. Wise men come from where? Where do the wise men come from? They come from the east. So if they're coming from the east, where are they going towards? The west. God is restoring Eden, paradise. He's bringing his people back to him. And he's telling a story from the very beginning to try to help us understand it and see it. Do you see it? Hope, unbelievable hope in the midst of losing paradise. Beautiful. Romans 5, 8, it's on the screen. I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us so much. His compassionate intervention, he's proving to us he loves us so much, he'll do whatever it takes to bring us back to him. Even the death of his own son. I mean, the the book of Romans 5 talks about It talks about scarcely will someone die for a righteous person or even a good person, but Jesus shows up and he dies for sinners. He dies for sinners. I want you to see two more verses. They're gonna be on the screen, the next verse. Two more verses. 1 Peter 1. You can turn there with me. Actually, I want you to turn. Turn there with me, I want you to see it. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, I'm talking about unbelievable hope that was given many years ago, but our hope is different now. We're not in the place that Adam and Eve were. We're not waiting for this Messiah to be born. He's already been born. We look back and we see what he did. We're not waiting. We're not, we're not standing on that same hope, are we? Our hope is a little different. Our hope is more realized. Our hope is, is something still that we're waiting on. But I want you to see what First Peter says to a group of Christians who would have been in the midst of hurting. These Christians would have definitely been experiencing the the curse and the persecution of people in the world who hated them. He writes to the church that's dispersed and hiding, and he says this. Look at verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is our hope now? Our hope now is a inheritance that God's like, here it is. It's waiting for you. It's waiting for you. Here it is. I've got it. It's an inheritance of eternal life and the riches of my son. It's paradise that's better than anything you could ever imagine waiting for you. 
And as a thief on the cross is dying and he looks in the 11th hour with his last breath over to Jesus and realizes in the last minute who he really is and in faith says, Jesus, remember me. Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. And there's an inheritance waiting for all of God's people and it's being guarded by God's power. No one's gonna take it, but it's being guarded how? Through faith. Faith. You must continue your journey, enduring through the rest of your life, believing that God has promised you something. He will come through on his promises. You cannot give up on that. That is what the enemy wants you to do, is to give up your faith and to stop trusting in God. Don't let it happen. It's waiting for you. Now, what else is waiting for us? Turn to Revelation chapter 22. What else is waiting for us? Revelation chapter 22. Verses one through five. So what John says, last book of the Bible, talking about end things, talking about God coming and dealing with the enemy once and for all, making things right, making a new heavens and a new earth. Look at this. Then the angel showed me, talking to John, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 fruit kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each much. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. You see, yeah, God put a, put a cherubim that guarded the weight of the tree of life because God needed that to be guarded so no man would take his own means to try to get to the tree of life and that God would make the way for us through the lamb, which is why the lamb is now at the throne, which is Lao, the lamb that died for everyone is the one to be worshiped, which is now our hope has been realized. He has come, he's died, he's risen. Church, he is on his way. So is there unbelievable hope in the midst of a pandemic? Is there unbelievable hope in the midst of a rocky marriage, in the midst of losing a loved one, in the midst of your children going awry, in the midst of school and friends and all the evils that you're facing, bringing you down to a disparaging, disparaging moment of self-deprecation and isolation, saying, like, what hope is there? What is? God's here. He's been here this whole time, and you're a part of the story. He wants you to endure. Look to his son Jesus and see what he is bringing you. You know what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm going away. But know this, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And know this, that I will come and receive you again to myself. You are going to be with you because my father is preparing a place for you. If you believe in Jesus, you've put your faith and trust in him apart from your own works, looking to him as the only one who can bring the salvation you desperately need. You have a place waiting for you. And this world, this accursed world will be no more. And you'll look back on this life and you'll be so glad you endured. So glad you placed your faith in Jesus. So, so glad you gave up the momentary pleasures of the world for eternal life. But if you're listening or if you're here and you're still trying to find life, trying to find your way in your own passions and desires and through what the world's telling you, through what your heart's telling you, trying to live life, chasing everything that you feel like will make you happy, trying to live that way. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God is also showing you a picture right now. The misery that you feel in the world as a result of those things will be amplified to the 10th degree 
as you are cast ultimately into the east, into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place called hell. That's what it is. It's people getting exactly what they want. I don't want anything to do with God. And so God will give them exactly what they want. And he's showing us right now on earth a little taste of what it's like. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and it's closer now than it ever was. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your intervention. Thank you for the hope that you bring us even in the midst of losing paradise. Only you are great enough to somehow bring this ultimate hope that will bring smiles to our face when we're losing paradise or going through what we're going through now. You bring supernatural peace. You bring peace that goes beyond anything we could understand. God, I pray that you'd help us, every single person here, every single person listening, that you'd open our eyes to know the love and the depths, the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. God, you will bring us to the tree of life, but it won't be found in this world. It's waiting for us. Give us the strength to endure. I pray all in the name of Jesus. Amen. so grateful that we are not like the original um, people who would have been reading Genesis, that we have a living hope. I was also thinking, I didn't know Jasper was going to First Peter 1, but I was also thinking of it. Um, so I'm going to read it again because um, there's a spot at the end that I feel like is really applicable. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, and we, we haven't seen him, you love him, and we do. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's respond. Let's praise God that we have a living hope that we know Jesus is alive and we get to praise him even when it's hard, even when we've lost paradise, even when we're going through trials. Jesus is alive and we get to praise him. So if you'll stand with me and respond in worship.
Bye.
Our God is alive. You know, we call ourselves Summit Church, and that's for a reason, because we want this picture of us looking to something that's beyond what we can currently see just around us. And that's a constant reminder for Summit to lift their eyes past the canopy of trees to the perspective and the things of heaven and where God is, because there's always a story that's outside of the one that we're letting our circumstances tell us, always. The scripture comes in and God always work things together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Keep your eyes on the summit. Hey, if you're new or if you just need someone to talk to, we'll have people down here. Come talk to us. Let us pray over you. Read you some scripture, answer any questions you may have. And I hope that you go out this week remembering the living hope that is always true and always there over you. You were loved. God bless church.